So um, aloha kako everyone. Uh, thanks for coming on this detour and the invitation to be with you all. Um, every time we do this, it's a new experience. I always learn a lot and get a lot out of it, but hopefully it also builds community. It builds Pilina between our different communities and struggles, and it energizes us to do the important work that we have to do to make social change and bring about ea, right, yeah. sovereignty. This is a Hawaii Rising podcast special. I'm Kenji Cataldo. I'm Suyuno Amos. Since families living in military housing first began to smell fuel in their tap water in November, the Red Hill water crisis has mobilized a broad movement demanding the shutdown of the 80-year-old fuel storage facility and the protection of Oahu's water. There are many groups leading this grassroots movement, including the Oahu Water Protectors, Ka'ohevai, the Sierra Club, and Hawaii Peace and Justice. Hawaii People's Fund has a long relationship with Hawaii Peace and Justice, having first supported the organization in 1988. One of the current organizers with Hawaii Peace and Justice is Kyle Kajihiro, a man who wears many hats. I'm Kyle Kajihiro. Um, I'm with Hawaii Peace and Justice, uh, the Oahu Water Protectors, also with Malama Makua, and I teach at the University of Hawaii in Ethnic Studies and um, Geography. This past weekend, we joined a detour, or demilitarization tour, led by Kyle. Here's Kyle again. We've been doing this, what we call our detours, uh, for a number of years now. And so um, it starts out because we, were, we had visiting friends and colleagues who would, uh, you know, they, they were, I used to work for a group called the American Friends Service Committee. And uh, these are folks that do progressive political peace and justice work. But somehow when they came to visit us in Hawaii, to, we're doing political work, something turns off in their brain and they act like they're on vacation, right? They're coming to play. Um, and I, it was always frustrating and puzzling why that was happening. Like why, why wasn't that critical thinking also applying to this place? And I realized that this is part of the, the curse, I guess, of Hawaii is that it's a beautiful place. Uh, it has a lot of you know, uh, mana in the land and in the people but it also means that it can get abused by people outside who want to extract that beauty and that power uh, and, and just consume it. And this is what the tourism industry does to us. And so we, we started to do the detours as a way of um, uh, introducing people to a, a more real story about Hawaii. And then once they had an orientation, now we can really talk. And now we can really have you know, these conversations about responsibilities of, of people here to this place, but also to the wider world. This particular detour was a training for Makua Kia'i and others sponsored by Malama Makua, a current community partner of the People's Fund that is working for the return of Makua Valley from army training to appropriate cultural stewardship. We'll be featuring an interview about Malama Makua with Auntie Lynette Cruz and Uncle Sparky Rodriguez in an upcoming episode. The focus of this detour was the complex of military bases and facilities around Pearl Harbor. After gathering at Iolani Palace and opening with ceremony at the Ahu, we made stops at Camp Smith, the entrance to the Red Hill Fuel Storage Complex, the Ko'a constructed by Ka'ohevai outside Pacific Fleet Command, and the Pearl Harbor Memorial. 
We close the day with lunch and more conversation at Hana Kehau, the farm and activist training ground run by Andre Perez and Camille Kalama. The detour lasted most of the day and covered too much for us to share today. So we're going to focus in on the water crisis and take you along for just one leg of the tour, starting at the entrance of the Red Hill facility itself and ending at the Ko'a outside Pacific Fleet Command. Next stop is going to be at the front entrance to the Red Hill fuel tank. It's not very spectacular, but I think that's part of the point I want to point out. As we approached the entrance to Red Hill, Kyle began to tell us about the history of the underground tanks. The, the Red Hill fuel tanks are these 20 enormous um, steel and concrete tanks that were built underground in Kapukaki Ridge. Uh, we're going to go there to the base of that ridge right now. Um, they were built in secret. Uh, it was classified until 1995, I think, is when they declassified it. So all that time, you know, people who worked on it knew about it. It was sort of an urban legend, but many people didn't realize what was there. And since 1948, I think, was the first leak that was detected. Uh, they had an earthquake and um, tens of thousands of gallons of fuel leaked out at that time. So since then, until the present, they estimate about 73 or something leaks that they know of um, and possibly a couple of hundred thousand gallons of fuel have leaked out over that time maybe more maybe less um, the tanks sit 100 feet above the halava moanalua aquifer and so this is the main aquifer that supplies water to uh, honolulu um, it's part of the larger pearl harbor aquifer complex and so if you, took it, you look at Pearl Harbor Aquifer, that supplies about 77% of Oahu's drinking water. The Halava Shaft, which is just in the next valley over, so about half a mile from Red Hill, that um, is a board of water supply, um, one of their main pumps, and it supplies about 10 million gallons of uh, water per day. Uh, that pump supplies water to about 400,000 residents of Honolulu. Uh, go to the right. You'll sometimes hear Kyle giving directions to the bus driver. So you can turn around. So yeah, this is the Halava Correctional Facility, the prison on Oahu. And then um, if you can just turn, turn, yeah, just turn them around. Maybe maybe pull off the side for a bit so we can talk, and then and we're just gonna turn around and go back out. Yeah. So the the Halava Correctional Facility, you know, to our left, and then up ahead there, you see that gate. Uh, that's the main entrance to the Red Hill fuel tank system, and so there's. There's tunnels sort of buried into that ridge. Uh, the tanks begin about, I think about where this building is to our left and goes up Mauka under there. So part of what you're seeing here is what, like, how unremarkable it is. <laughs> like it just looks like a ridge, but there's these giant tanks underneath. And I think that's part of the point is how the militarization and these kind of environmental, the forms of environmental violence or slow violence as some uh, scholars call it, um, are hidden in plain sight. Um, so you can't see the drip, drip, drip of the fuel, but it's been happening, right? They, they know that every year uh, fuel is leaking out from these tanks. Uh, they estimate that within five years, there's an 80 something percent chance of more than 30,000 gallons leaking. Within 10 years, 95 to 98% chance of, uh, of a major spill. Um, and the danger is that these, the walls of these tanks, which were built almost 80 years ago, 
uh, were originally a, a quarter inch thick steel. They've now corroded down to the thickness of about a dime, right? There's no way to know from inside the tanks what's going on outside. And so that steel is up, pressed up against concrete. There's moisture in that environment. And when they did uh, what they call an, um, a destructive test, they'll cut, cut out a piece of steel about 10 inches in the um, square. And they looked at the backside, that's what they found, is this corrosion. And so if you imagine, that's what's standing between 12.4 million gallons of fuel in one tank uh, and the aquifer 100 feet down. That's why everyone is saying this is a ticking time bomb and it needs to be defueled as soon as possible, as safely as possible, and permanently decommissioned, right? This latest spill, in some ways we were fortunate that, I mean, unfortunately for those families, they were affected, but fortunately it was contained to the Navy system and it didn't get into the, the civilian water supply, which would have affected, like I said, 400,000 users all the way from Pearl City out to Hawaii Kai. And so, if you can imagine, right now there's thousands of military families that can't move back into their homes because the water is polluted, right? They've been in hotels uh, for about three months. Um, if, if that pollution were to hit the Board of Water Supply well and got into the system, there would be not enough places where we could put people. Um, the hotels would also have contaminated water, right? Um, so it would, it would be a cascading catastrophe. Uh, it would affect the, uh, as it is with the um, contamination where it is right here, the Board of Water Supply stopped pumping water from their shaft out of precaution because they didn't want to suck the water, the contaminants across the valley to their well. That means they have three major pumps in this vicinity turned off. They're not using that water. And instead they're drying the water from other, other sources, other aquifers those other aquifers could become compromised if they pull too much water out of it and salt water starts to intrude into it. That could be a danger, right? Uh, so probably by summer when, when it gets drier, they, the Board of Water is estimating that they're gonna have to call for water conservation measures. Uh, no watering your lawns, golf courses, you know, some sort of rationing. Uh, that means that a lot of construction projects that were approved may not be now because they can't get water for it. So. Um, it has a cascading effect, and, and this is just from a small, relatively small spill of about 20,000 gallons, 19,000 gallons. So, um, something people have been warning about for, for years, uh, and since, at least since 2014, when the last major spill happened, there was a 27,000 gallon leak that happened in that year, and that's what you know, brought a lot of attention to it. And so now, the Sarah Club has been suing uh, to intervene in these cases, to argue that there should not be a permit issued to the Navy for operating the tanks. Um, and so that case is still pending. Uh, and then with the latest leak, the, um, the, the state of Hawaii issued an emergency order uh, to suspend operations, defuel the tanks, make whatever repairs and treatment of water uh, that's necessary. Um, and we hope it will be a permanent shutdown of the, of the tanks. Now we, we, we demand, we think that's the only safe option moving forward. Um, the Navy has decided, they, they said that they were going to comply with the order last week, and then this week they sued the state in federal and state court, saying that they, um, the state doesn't have jurisdiction you know, over their decisions. So they've just shown over and over again how, uh, how much contempt they have for the authority of, of local people to govern our own environment and our water. 
uh, but also they show the disregard that our lives are disposable to them, right? That's, that's the, the tragedy and maybe the, the opportunity that we have to actually start talking real talk about what the cost of, of these um, kinds of facilities are, right? So again, thinking back to Pu'uloa as a food basket of Oahu and now seeing the contamination that has happened to it, uh, we can see what the costs are, what, what's at stake. Yeah. Uh, question was whether the prison was affected by the, the fuel. I think they're on the board of water supply system. So, so far, that system is, is still clean. Um, we're trying to keep it that way by not pumping the water. But they don't know. The Navy has tried to model what happens underground. That's part of the problem is that the hydrogeology is really complex. There's a lot of layers of different kind of rock, different densities, cracks. Um, and so they don't know how the water behaves and what the contaminants do underground. They still don't know what happened to the 27,000 gallons of fuel from uh, last, uh, the last spill in 2014. Um, and that's why they don't want to be sucking water from these aquifers. You see how hard it is to clean it out. They've flushed it three times now. Yeah. So they said, um, what was the Erin Kawada said, um, it's like you put salad dressing in a bowl, in a cup and then you try to rinse it out with fresh water and the, all that oil sticks to the side. That's what they're trying to clean out of the whole system for the Navy water system. And, and that stuff gets into the plastic piping in your dishwasher, water heater, refrigerator, all that stuff. They probably will have to be replaced. So this is why they're having so many problems cleaning it out. As we started the drive out to the Koa, Kyle took some questions. So what does putting these fuel tanks in a place that would be considered sacred, what does that mean? You know, I think it just shows the kind of violence. It's a, it's a violence of, of an attitude, I guess, first, that sees places as not important unless it's useful to them. And so a place like Hawaii with um, its life ways that were here, the, the whole sophisticated, you know, political economy and way of managing uh, the resources, uh, all of that is just seen as um, unimportant uh, and, and so therefore can be sacrificed uh, for the utility of the US military. So Hawaii gets turned into a weapon, needs to turn into a tool, and um, we see that again when they, they're willing to put our lives in jeopardy by not following the emergency order and not defueling the tanks. Right. Yeah, I should just you know mention that um, this Red Hill disaster is only the latest iteration of a long line of environmental disasters and environmental violence that's happened. So if you look at the annual uh, Defense Environmental Restoration Program reports, um, there's hundreds, almost a thousand uh, contamination sites, military contamination sites in Hawaii. Everything from small sites to these large ones um, some of them are formerly used sites, so um, lands that the military used during World War II, they bombed and left ordnance behind and then left. Those are on the list for potential cleanup, but it's going to take hundreds of years at the rate that they're going. So for example, in, in uh, Hawaii Island at Waikoloa, there's 110,000 acre parcels from Waimea all the way down to the coastline uh, and up to Pohakuloa that is contaminated with unexploded ordnance. And they, they budgeted about $800 million and it's gonna take like decades, maybe a century at the rate that they're going to remove all of that, right? But that's 
that's what's happening. This stuff affects future generations, right? And, and why we're saying it's important that we stop this destruction now and begin cleaning it up so our children and their children don't have to deal with uh, the mess that's left behind. <laughs> why above the aquifer? Good question. I mean, I think the main reason why here is they wanted a place that was that could be hidden uh, and up up gradient so that the gravity could feed it down to the ships. So yeah, they wanted it in a place that could be protected. So they thought the rock would protect it. It would be hidden. Uh, it had gravity feed. Uh, and I think at that point they didn't really understand or didn't really think about what could happen to the water, right? Like today we would know better than to put fuel above an aquifer that we drink from, right? You don't. You don't poop where you where you eat, right? Uh, but unfortunately, back then they did this, and so you know this is the chance for us to actually rectify that situation by getting it out and cleaning it up. How do they get the fuel there? So how do they get the fuel there? We, we'll see a place where the the ships pull in, they plug they plug them into the pipelines, and then they pump it up, and then from there they you know they they pump it back down or they let it feed down, and they refuel other ships and feed it out into um, a network that goes all the way out to like the airport area. So we'll see the pier, the, the hotel pier where they had the first spill last year. Uh, that's right across from the Arizona Memorial. We followed the path of the pipeline from Red Hill to Pacific Fleet Command Headquarters. So, so just to kind of give you a spatial, you know, situ uh, situated from where we were, the pipeline is running sort of under the ridge over here, right? Sort of under these homes and stuff. They have, a, they have a pipeline and a, a small railroad and a tunnel that runs from the tanks down to Pearl Harbor. So it runs underground under these homes and stuff. And that's why they started smelling fuel before it poured out of their pipes. So yeah, there's sort of a crater, the rim of the crater here is where they, they sort of ran it underneath that, um, that high point. But it runs under civilian homes. So I don't know how they did that. They must have an easement on the property or something. Um, it runs across the highway, we'll cross over it probably, and then when we come around to the other side, we'll be um, in the front of it. Um, and that facility is the Pacific Fleet Command Headquarters. Yeah, so this is the entrance to the one, the back entrance to the Pacific Fleet Command. I think the pipeline runs under this high area right here by this light. And I believe it goes under part of the Makalapa Elementary School. So somewhere under here is the pipeline and the tunnel. Our route took us by the military housing where families have been most affected by the leaking fuel. So um, just coming up here, uh, one thing to notice is just the military housing on the right is is how it's laid out you know there's there's a sort of a suburban aesthetic to it white fence uh, the same kind of houses and then just sort of a working class um multi-families living in you know homes on the on the left side um those homes on the right those homes on the right you know these are some of the homes that were affected first by the spill Okay, so we're going to turn into the military housing area and pass the golf course. So again, just re re recall that um, around, I think it was around 1998 or so, there was a law passed that privatized military housing 
previously that you know this would all been run by the government but then they privatized it had private companies bid for it they got the contract renovate the homes and then they get guaranteed income from these families and so the so it's a good deal for them it's like a 50-year contract um, and almost all these military homes are now uh, privatized so the, what they did is the military families didn't get an allowance. They can spend it here. They could spend it in the private market. Um, and here's the golf course, because golf is vital for national security. So one one thing that's you know about the who was affected, right? It was it was Navy families like these, Army families because there's Army families living in some of the housing, even though it's on the Navy system. And then other workers and uh, you know people from the community who either work in businesses that were using the water or uh, children going to the school, teachers at the schools that are on the military system, uh, they were also affected. Um, and so the, there's been an uneven response. The Army did a better job of notifying people and providing um, uh, you know, assistance. Um, but the Navy was like dragging its feet and sort of gaslighting people, right? And so there's, there's different, um, there were different responses from the service branches, creating confusion and people were frustrated. Also the army families were more willing to speak out. They didn't feel as afraid. Whereas Navy families have been pretty intimidated to actually speak out uh, publicly. But this, so this golf course here is military and this mall here, Mauna Loa Shopping Center uh, is open to the public, but it sits on military land. So it's using the Navy water system and they had problems. That Taco Bell had to close because they had some contamination. Taco Bell had to close because of water contamination. And, and here's one of the public schools on military land, so it's all military children that are being affected. So one thing about the public schools that serve military families, whoa, <laughs> they, um, we, we get, our public schools are funded by uh, income taxes, the general fund taxes, but if, if your military, pay, military payroll is not taxed by the state, right? So they don't contribute as much into the general fund for public services like schools. And so the federal government provides what they call impact aid, but it only counts for about a 10th of the actual cost per pupil. So there's a kind of a subsidy that we're providing to the military dependent families at the schools. So you know when we get to the, the, the Pacific Fleet Command gate, so you're going to turn right up here on Kamehameha Highway and then stay on the right side. We're going to pull right onto the grass over there. That's city, that's a city parcel. And we, they said we could, you know, park and stuff over there, so. Further up? Yeah, a little bit more up. So the Pearl Harbor base is to our left and you'll see some of the, some of these um, above ground tanks here are connected to the fuel system. Uh, that goes all the way up to Red Hill that we passed. We're gonna be coming up to the headquarters of the commander of the Pacific Fleet and stopping there. We arrived at the entrance to Pacific Fleet Command. Outside the federal property, there's an open grassy area. A big sign reads, Headquarters Commander U.S. Pacific Fleet. And in front, in a kapu area marked off by bamboo poles, rope, and tea leaves is the koa a stone shrine. A large wooden ki'i or image of the freshwater god Kane stands on the ko'a. So the struggle over protecting our water 
has been going on for a long time. In the recent period, at least since 2014, the Sierra Club has been leading the way in challenging uh, the Navy on many fronts, joining forces with the Board of Water Supply, um, pushing the, the state government and the federal regulators to do more, but it hasn't been enough, obviously. Um, and so last year, uh, around uh, the end of, in the early fall, Hawaii Peace and Justice and the Sierra Club, Kahea, um, Kalahui, a number of other groups uh, started meeting to talk about what, what can we do to continue to put pressure on. And we had heard stories that there had been some leak, so we were concerned about that, and we weren't getting much information. Um, but then in November, when all of the news started to come out about people being poisoned, uh, things really picked up. So the Oahu Water Protectors had been meeting already, and then another group formed in, in early December, uh, Native Hawaiians who are cultural practitioners, political activists, uh, formed a coalition called Ka'ohewai. And um, on December 12th, in the wee hours of the morning before sunrise, um, about, I don't know how much, Sparky, about 50, 75 people came, um, just rolled up with pohaku from their aina, from wherever, uh, built this ahu within a, you know, about 15, 20 minutes. Um, and installed this, or it's actually a ko'a, it's a ko'a, and installed this ki'i, this carving of, the, of kane, right? So kane is one of the principal Hawaiian deities. Uh, kane is all the forms of fresh water from, and, and I think uh, Makayo and, and, and Gina folks, that the, the, you folks might do the, the oli and, and teach that the, to us. So it talks about all the forms of water. Right, and, and Kane is also the sibling of Kanaloa, who is the deep sea and the waters underground, right? So they're two are often together as they tra travel over the land and look for sources of water. So wherever there's springs is where Kane and Kanaloa had touched and put their stick in the ground, the o'o, and brought forward water, right? So water is sacred, why is sacred to them? But this is the, what the image is, is of Kane. Um, and it's what I heard uh, Kalehua Krug describe this as a ko'a, a koa is like, is often constructed to attract fish. Like there are, there are shrines that are put underwater or sometimes on shore, and it would be a, a, an attractor, an aggregator for, for fishing grounds. So a koa like this is to also attract um, and bring, call forward the people who will protect the wai, who will protect the water, right? That's what the call was when they constructed this. Um, and so um, they, they chose to do it right here in front of the, uh, command the headquarters of the commander of the Pacific Fleet. So basically, this is the headquarters of the Navy in the Pacific, uh, and they decided to do it right here in front of their sign to make a stand. And said they said they're going to leave it here until the tanks are decommissioned, right? Until the threat is gone to our Hawaii. And so um, we wanted to stop here since it was on our way, but also to pay respects to this site and to um, you know let you folks uh, understand this mo'olelo, this part of the history, right? And again, this is about changing the, the meaning of these places. At the direction of Auntie Lynette, Makua Kia'i unfurled a large Hawaiian flag and hung it over the Pacific Fleet Headquarters sign, claiming this place as sovereign Hawaiian space. Because the koa is kapu and the kahu, the caretaker responsible for it, wasn't there to oversee ceremony, we weren't able to offer ho'okupu at the koa itself. Instead, 
Nani Peterson, and Macayo Villanueva taught and led us in He Mele no Kane, an oli about the waters of Kane. This oli, which names the locations of water throughout the environment, expresses the sacredness of vai, of water, and records deep Hawaiian cultural knowledge about this precious resource, about water cycles and sustainable living, about the intimate relationship between Kanaka and the Aina. The section of Himele no Kane that Nani and Makayo felt most important to teach to all of us on this day was this refrain. He ui, he ninao. A question, a query. E ui aku ana au ya oi. I pose to you. Aya ihea kavaya kane. Where is the water of kane? Nani and Makayo stressed the importance of this question as a call to action to all people of Hawaii to seek out and remember where your waters come from. And through this call, they said, we speak to the waters in each other. In the latest news about Red Hill, U.S. Representatives Kai Kahele and Ed Case have responded to weeks of grassroots mobilizations and introduced a federal bill called the Red Hill Watershed and Aquifer Initiative Act, or Red Hill Vi Act, which would permanently shut down the Red Hill fuel storage facility. But until it's actually shut down, the fight for Oahu's water continues. Hawaii Rising is a podcast from the Hawaii People's Fund produced by me and me with additional support from Mickey. Our theme music is Revolutionary from the band Ukla the Mock, written and sung by Mickey Hui Hui. Production of this podcast is supported by a fellowship from Princeton University. Thank you to our community donors and to you, our audience, for listening. To learn how to support the movement to protect our water, you can follow Ka'ohe Vai and Oahu Water Protectors on Instagram or Facebook. Any